0: welcome once again to the perimeter church podcast be careful what you wish for being part of a king's inner circle sounds great power wealth fame but this king is not about power wealth and fame but something else entirely something better teaching team member jeff norris brings us this message entitled kingdom posture which covers Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45, and 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Father, we pray this
1: morning that that you would take your word that we're going to open here and that you would use it powerfully to... Convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Father, that you would cause your word to to shape us and to mold us into what you would have us be into the image of your son. Holy Spirit, would you simply use me as your vessel and would you fill this room and our hearts with your presence? Give us ears to hear and eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. We pray all for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. A little quick orientation as to where we are, where we're headed. We just finished last week with a four-week series on uh, Habakkuk. If you missed any of those, I would strongly encourage you to go back, listen to those on the podcast. This week I'll be doing uh, kind of a stand-alone sermon, not a part of a series, kind of towards this whole idea of service. What does it look like for the Christian to serve in a way that glorifies God and why should we do that? Next week Caleb will do a standalone sermon as well. And then the week after that, two weeks from today, Randy will be back with us. And he'll begin a series, a six-week series, walking through Romans 8. And uh, you'll want to make sure that you're here for all of that. And it's uh, going to be a great series, the Romans series, coming up here in a couple of weeks. Let me ask you a question. A question that I have thought about as I've prepared this week. And I'll set it up first before, that, before I ask the actual question. But here, here's the scenario. Let's imagine that, uh, that Jesus is here physically among us now. Now, we believe that Christ is here spiritually. If you're a follower of Christ, he is in you. He, his spirit dwells within you, and so he's here. But I mean physically, and what I mean is imagine that he never came the first time 2,000 years ago and that his first coming to dwell among his people and walk among his people is now. And his Galilee, so to speak, the the place where most of his ministry took place and where where he walked among us primarily is not in Israel, but it's Atlanta and the greater Atlanta area. And we find ourselves following, literally walking and going where Jesus is walking and going. Now here's the question. If that were true, if that were the case, Would you like him? You may go, can he ask that? Is that okay to ask in church? Would you like him? And and, and let me be specific. If you began to go where he would want to go, if you began to, wherever he was going, to talk to the people that he would want to talk to. In other words, if you were going to be about what he's about, would would you like him? Because here's the thing, Jesus was the Jesus who walked among us was astoundingly and uncomfortably displaced and countercultural. And so we consider this question of if we walked and followed him everywhere he went, if we if we wanted to go where he wanted to go and these kind of things, would it blow up our lives? Would it mess up how we do life? In other words, another question that, that pierces my own heart is this. How much would following Jesus disrupt my life right now? As I follow the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of the culture, or the Jesus that actually is and was, or the Jesus of my making and my shaping according to my levels of comfort and ease, would following Jesus literally... Would it disrupt, would it change, would it rock my world? Or is the way that I am living my life in response to his love for me and his presence within me in line with who he is and what he's about? Because I'm convinced of this, ultimately, left unto ourselves, I mean like uh, totally and completely apart from the grace of God, The love of God, the mercy of God, doing any work within us, just left completely unto ourselves, fully in the sin that we were born into. Here's what's true of us. We are a people who will continually clamor for power, prestige, and self-glory. That's who we are. And we we will clamor for power and prestige and self-glory, and it will all be centered around the primary question, what's in it for me? How is this going to benefit me? What we're going to see in this text, we're going to see that that's true of us in the text that we're going to look at, but what we're also going to see is that when we are undone by the grace of God, then we begin to not be those people, we begin to shift and actually become a people who clamor for service and sacrifice and the glory of God. Left unto myself, power, prestige, self-glory. Through the power of Christ in me and what he's doing in me and his transformative work through me. Serve as sacrifice, his glory. Think about it this way. Think about it in the, with a little bit of a word picture with posture. Uh, I've always struggled with good posture. In fact, a lot of times when I'm preaching in here and I'm going to read something and I turn I turn sideways before, I, and I just go, oh, i got to stand up straighter, get those shoulders back. My mom, who's here this morning, I can remember over and over again growing up where she would say, Straighten up, good posture. I'm a sloucher. I I tend to do this. There was a day and time where you could tell a lot about a person based on their posture. At least you could tell about their occupation. What do they do for a living? Perhaps they had a job where they were bent over a lot. Maybe they're, you know, a a blacksmith of some kind or or whatever it may be, a a cobbler where they're constantly working on the shoe or a seamstress where they're always bent over working with the, the thread and the needle. And so when they stand up, you realize they've got a job that keeps them in that way. And you can tell a lot about them based on their posture. Let me ask you this question. What would people be able to tell about your God Based on the posture of your life. What, what is your spiritual posture? How do we carry ourselves in such a way that where people can see deep, awe-inspiring things about our God because of how we posture ourselves both in the church and in outside the church in the way of service and sacrifice? Turn with me to Mark 10. Mark chapter 10, if you have your Bibles right there at the beginning of your New Testament. Second gospel, if not, it's printed in your bulletin It'll be on the screens for you as well. I want to read to you a passage here where we're going to watch, we're going to observe a couple of Jesus' disciples engaging with him. And we're going to see very clearly that what they're asking is they're asking for power, prestige and the glory of self. And we're going to see Jesus gently and patiently correct them and rebuke, him, rebuke them. Now, what we'll see in this first verse is there's, there's two disciples that have come to Jesus. And these two disciples, just to give you a quick uh, little picture of what's going on with the disciples, you had the 12 that Jesus called and said, walk with me, follow me. But then of those 12, you had three that, are, that were the, kind of the inner circle, the ones that spent the most time with Jesus. And those three were Peter, James, and John. Now what we'll see here is I begin to read in a moment that it's James and John who come and ask a question that ultimately we'll see was really out of place. And it's, it's surprising to me that of the three, Peter, James, and John, that it wasn't Peter who came and asked first. Because if you're familiar with the, the disciples in the scriptures, Peter was the one that was typically the loudmouth. He was the one that was the one who typically would come and say something that uh, after he said it, he's trying to put his, get his foot out of his mouth and say, "Oh, well, I didn't mean it that way. But it's actually James and John who come, which is a little bit surprising. They were the, they were the more meek of the, of the three, if you will. But look what happens, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's bold. Who's serving who here? And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? As if he didn't know. And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now you have to understand, they're asking this question because they are still operating under the mindset that what Jesus has come to do in his first coming and when he came 2,000 years ago was to come in and deliver God's people, the Hebrew people, the Jews, from the oppression of the Romans. They are not seeing at this point and they don't see until much later and understand much later that what they need most is not rescue from the oppression of the Romans but rescue from the oppression of sin in their own hearts. They think the problem is out there. And so they are still thinking that Jesus has come in to kick some tail. To go into Jerusalem and to eradicate the rule of the Romans and to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem now. And so they're asking for this this place that once you do that, Jesus, whenever you go in and do that, we want to sit to your right and left. And remember, uh, really what they're saying, we'd like to have power and prestige and self-glory with you in your glory. Now what's really astounding about this and I didn't read it but in the in the few verses right before this text Jesus has straight up told them what's going to happen. He has said to them we're going to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And it's as if they went, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, oh, okay. Hey, so when, whenever, again, when you get on the throne, can I be there right next to you? They didn't even hear what Jesus is saying about the suffering that's going to come first to the Savior and then to his people because of their identification with him. They're not hearing that the nature of the kingdom of God is one of service and sacrifice, not power and prestige. Look what happens. Verse 38. Jesus said to them, "You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with, with which I am baptized?" In other words, he's saying, "Look, you, you don't know what you're saying. Like I just told you what's going to happen to me. It's not going to be pretty, but it's going to be necessary to rescue you from what your greatest need is. Are you sure you know what you're asking?" And are you able to share in that? Are you able to suffer and to to be devoted to a life of service in the kingdom of God and of sacrifice in the kingdom of God in the the same vein, in the same way that I, your Savior, am going to model for you? And their answer is, yep. We're ready. They don't get it. Their answer is, yes, we are able. Now, this makes me laugh. I don't know if it should. Maybe my humor is twisted, but it reminds me of many times as a father where my kids have asked for something and they have no idea what they're asking for. And you try to say, hey, do you realize what you're getting into here? One memory in particular comes to mind when uh, my son, our oldest, Samuel, he's 15 now. He was probably maybe seven or eight at the time. We're at a restaurant and I'm eating hot wings and they're hot. And he's sitting next to me and he says, Dad, I want some of those. Son, they're going to be hot. You sure? I'm sure. I want you to understand. Are you able to, to eat these because they're going, to, they're going to make your mouth really hot and you're probably going to wish you had not done it? Are you sure you're ready to get into this? I'm sure. I'm ready. Okay, let me just make sure you understand... <laughs> What this real red bright sauce is on here and what it will do to you? Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. 5 minutes later drinking milk. <laughs> you didn't tell me it was this hot. I told you it was this hot. I tried to warn you. Jesus says, "Are you are you able? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink?" And very naively and very ignorantly, James and John say, yep, we just want that power, prestige, and self-glory. Sign us up. Verse 39, and they said to him, we were able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. He's saying, look, just so you know, even though you don't understand now, you will experience Service and sacrifice at the kingdom in the kingdom of God as you identify yourself with me. Ten of the eleven disciples, and I'm saying eleven because Judas was the twelfth who hung himself after he, after he betrayed Christ. But of the other eleven, ten of those history holds uh, were killed for their faith in Christ. The eleventh was John himself and it wasn't like he, he retired in, in luxury. Uh, he was exiled to the island of Patmos where he died in chains of natural causes. So Jesus is saying this will come and you will understand one day that your identification with me is not towards power, prestige, and self-glory. It's actually towards service and sacrifice to the glory of God. And it's in our attempts and our longing to glorify God that we actually experience the deepest satisfaction in our own hearts. To sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those For whom it has been prepared. Verse 41 And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And you say, Good for the other ten. They recognize the misplaced question here and they realize hey, guys, this was totally out of line to ask that question to Jesus because don't you understand that he's come to rescue us spiritually first and foremost and that there's a day coming where he will come again and that will be the time that he ushers in his new kingdom fully and completely and the government will be upon his shoulders and he will reign forever and ever physically in the new heavens and new earth don't you know this no no no. they weren't indignant because they they got it they were indignant because James and John asked the question before they did And they were mad Did the right and the left place that Jesus was already taken. I wanted it first. Power, prestige, self-glory, you got it before me. Verse 42, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. This is what I was alluding to earlier, that left unto ourselves the Gentiles, the people who don't know God. This is what we will be about. We will be about lording it over others we will be about getting in positions of power and prestige for the glory of self we will be a people who do not serve but to exist in order to make others serve us because we think that's what this life is ultimately aimed at centered around the question what's in it for me and Jesus is going to softly and tenderly and patiently Say, that's not my kingdom. And that's not what you were created for. I've said it over and over again, but just in case you are one of those that loves to fill in blanks as a part of your Sunday worship experience. Let me give you what the first point is. The posture of the kingdom of this world is power, prestige, and self-glory. I mean, think about what they did. They came to him and they said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And then they asked that question and Jesus' response is awesome. Because he doesn't just pound them. He doesn't just, just come after them. He gently, graciously, tenderly, but authoritatively corrects them. And says, you don't know what you're asking. Now, now if it were me, I, I think back to a time that um, that I was in college and I had been serving in a, in a campus ministry for about three years. I had started walking with the Lord pretty significantly my sophomore year in college. And I'd gotten involved with with this ministry. And the first, after a year or so in the ministry, they asked me to kind of be the uh, the MC of the large group meetings which meant I was up in front a lot and so I was kind of the face of the ministry as a student and I thought that was, I thought that was really self-important, right? I mean, I, I thought it was a big deal and then I thought it was an even bigger deal when they asked me not too long after that to be on student staff which was this role that you got to be as a student where you got staff-like responsibilities as a part of your leadership development and so I thought a lot of myself which is really funny to think back on and I can remember this one time when, when um, uh, I was leading a Bible study and there was a guy in the group, maybe eight to ten people in the group, and there was this guy who was pushing back with some of the things that I was saying. And my response to him was, in essence, I've been a Christian since I was 11. I've been leading in this ministry for three years. I'm on student staff. Huh. You need to back down and listen to me. Because I am important. Now Jesus could have responded to these guys and he said, look guys, I've been around for all of eternity. I've created you. I'm the son of God. Be quiet, listen. But he didn't come with them with a, with a hammer. He came with them with, with this gentle spirit about them to say, guys, you, just, you don't know what you're asking. You're walking in line with the reason and the logic of this world. You're living in the world of the, key, uh, the kingdom of the world. And it's not about what you think it's about. It's actually about something so much better that to the world around you and to our human logic apart from the work of Christ within us is going to sound crazy. But it's actually what we long for and what we need is that in giving ourselves away, we actually find life. See, the problem that we have with Jesus in this whole do we like him front is that we love the Jesus. We love the Jesus who hung on the cross for us, but we struggle with the Jesus who walked as a servant among us. Because this Jesus who walked as a servant among us says right here in the text that we're about to read in a second. He says that I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And we go, yes, amen, hallelujah, Chorus, that's, that's why I love Jesus. And he says, and then I want you to do the same. I want you to serve. And I want you to give your life away. And in so doing, that's when you find life. It's counterintuitive, it's countercultural, it doesn't make sense to us, it displaces us in a way that's uncomfortable, it gets us out of our norm and we go, I don't know if I like this, but the more that we actually begin to live in line with the truth of the gospel and the working of Christ through us, we begin to experience the truth that in giving ourselves away in service and sacrifice for the glory of God, we actually experience the satisfaction that only he can provide in service to him and to his people. So the second point that I've said many times is the posture of the kingdom of God is service, sacrifice, and God's glory. Flip over to 1 Peter, towards the back of your New Testament. 1 Peter 4, I want, us to, I want to give us three specific ways that we live with right posture in the kingdom of God with this service and sacrifice posture in the kingdom of God. Listen to these verses in in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, starting in verse 8. It says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. That word earnestly is a a word that carries with it a lot of oomph, if you will. A lot of passion. Deep commitment. Another way that that word can be translated is deeply. To love one another deeply. So that's the first thing I want to give you, the first specific way that we live with right posture in the kingdom of God is that we love one another deeply, but we have to understand we've got to put out of our minds the world's definition of love that's been very Hollywoodized. Because the Hollywood version of love, the one that we buy into, is ultimately asking the question, what's in it for me? That love is ultimately about how that person makes me feel. And that's just a self-glorified way of love. And that's not the biblical, covenantal way of love that we see from God over and over and over again. Because what God shows us is that long before love is an emotion, love is a decision. It's a commitment. It's a choice. God over and over again has told his people that I am committed to you and covenant to you. And even when I am righteously angry at your sin, emotion... It doesn't affect my commitment to you, to serve you, to sacrifice for you, to love you in ways that put your needs above my own. And so, when we talk about loving each other deeply, it's not this emotional driven love as much as it is a love of commitment to one another that says, You're more important than me. I want to outserve you. Your needs are more important than mine and so it doesn't really matter at the end of the day if if you are hard to deal with or that I find you to be difficult with my personality mix with your personality mix or maybe I annoy you or you annoy me. It doesn't matter. I'm committed to you because I'm a follower of Christ and I want to serve you and move towards you in the same way that Christ has served and moved towards me. One of the commentators that I read, a guy named Edwin A. Bloom, said it this way. He said, love is capable of being commanded because it is not primarily an emotion but a decision of the will leading to action. Mothers, on this Mother's Day, can we say amen? Sometimes you don't like your kids. Sometimes you don't feel this deep emotion of love for your child who will not obey you and will not listen. But you say, I'm committed to this one. I will choose to love this one and I will serve him or her because they are mine. This is the love of God and this is the love that he calls and he says you serve in that same way to all of God's people. Secondly, look at verse 9. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is one of those verses where you love the first part and you go, why did you have to throw that in at the end? Show hospitality, that word hospitality, the second thing I want to give you is kind of this idea of welcoming guests gladly. Hospitality is throwing our arms open and saying you are welcome here. And it's not just guests, the the connotation of this word is used in the New Testament is, is actually strangers. It's not just people we know, it's people we don't know, and it's not just welcoming them into the church. The connotation in the New Testament was you're welcoming them into your home. You're saying, look, my door is is your front door as well. Please come in, have dinner with us. And it's not about entertaining. Hospitality has been hijacked to mean entertainment in our current world. It's not entertainment. It's simply saying, look, you have a place with us. And as we do life, would you come do life with us? And you are welcome at our table. And the food may not be good. And I'm going to put out paper plates. But But you're wanted here. And you're welcome here. May we be a church that continues to be hospitable. I love this church because I I see all the time the hospitality of this church, the welcoming of the stranger, the the glad welcome of a guest. Just yesterday I was was able to invite two of my neighbors to church. And one of the reasons I'm so bold in asking neighbors to church, and that made me sound like great and wonderful, I'm so bold. It was just like it was easy. They were there and they asked me what I did and then I said, hey, why don't you come? It was not hard. But... But one of the reasons, without hesitation, that I invite people to church is because I know that when they come, they will be welcomed by a church that is incredibly hospitable. Well done, Perimeter Church. I've seen it happen over and over and over again. Lastly, verse 10, steward our gifts excellently. Look at verse 10. It says this, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards. I'm using this language, excellent, because good stewards there is kind of pointing to this idea of excellency, that when you became a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, upon that surrender of of life to Jesus by faith, you receive the Holy Spirit, and with the receiving of God's Spirit within you, you were given spiritual gifts to use and to serve in the kingdom of God. For the edification and for the building up of his bride, the church. And so we want to help you. If you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, please come talk to us and say, I want to know what my gifts are. I've never really understood that. And we want to help you find what is your spiritual gift. Maybe it's teaching. Maybe it's serving, a gift of service. Maybe it's a gift of mercy. Maybe it's the gift of encouragement, the gift of prayer and intercession, the gift of administration, whatever it may be. God has given his people all these gifts to use together that corporately build up the church. And we want to do that excellently. We see that happening in the church. And we dream of how it can be true all the more. But ultimately, why do we do this? Why, why, why do we preach a sermon on service? Let me give you a few reasons. The first is this. The first is because the gospel compels us to do so. It's, it's what the gospel of Jesus Christ does in us. When we begin to consider the way, the unthinkable way, the immeasurable way in which he has loved us and served us and sacrificed for us on the cross. When we consider that we were the ones that deserved the just wrath of God because we were the ones who rejected God. Yet Jesus, who never rejected him from eternity past to eternity future, who has never done anything wrong, who's perfectly holy, came upon and walked upon us and did for us what we couldn't do, perfectly obeying God, and then went to the cross in our place, and the only man who ever walked the face of the earth, who didn't deserve the wrath of God, got it in our place. That service and sacrifice immeasurable. And when we consider the gospel of the sacrifice of Christ in our place, then he then compels us as he lives through us to do and be the very same. Let me give it to you this way. I want you to think about it maybe in a more of a word picture or or, or visual. If you've ever been to a really good concert, I I don't mean like one of those where it's kind of like live music and you're having dinner and you're kind of talking and then every now and then you're like, oh, it's a pretty good song. And then you keep talking. I'm talking about a concert that's your jam. It's your music. And you've maybe even paid high dollar to be at this concert because you love this band or this artist so much. Like for me, I'll just give you some examples of like kind of a my that would be for me. As some of the concerts I went to back in the day were you know Dave Matthews, John Mayer. Don't judge me. Um, Vertical Horizon. You, know, you can tell I'm a '90s college kid, right? Uh, Pat McGee Band, Doobie Brothers, Almond Brothers. Basically, kind of these these. Uh, um, these jam bands that, that you just, you get there. And for me, you go to these concerts and when that music, whatever your music is, whatever that just floats your boat, when that music gets in you, when that groove gets in you, you don't sit there. If you do, I don't understand you, but you don't sit there. You, you start moving. You get up, and maybe you go crazy. I'm not one of those. Maybe you're 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 one of the people that at a concert you're like, hey, just please stay in your seat, and you're all over the place. But for me, it was more of the you know the uh, the white guy frat dance, you know, where you're just kind of doing this number, right? But I gotta move. I keep it tight, you know. I don't want to mess with you. I don't want to. You know, but it's just right in here, you get the head bob going. But that groove gets in you. That music gets in you and you have to move because you go, this is good. This is what it's all about. This is what I, this is my music. When, when Christ gets into us, When his nature gets into us, when he compels us and changes us with his transformative work and from the inside out we are becoming new people, we begin to move in ways that we go, I can't help it, this is just who I am now. Before I saw it, it's all about me, what's in it for me, uh, power, prestige, self-glory, but Christ is doing something to where I actually want to serve, and it's not always easy, but I'm committed to it, and I want to sacrifice. I want to give my life away because I've experienced time and time again that when I give my life away for the one who gave his life away, I find life. And It's glorious. And we say, I want to serve. I want to be like Jesus because he is incredible. And so we do it in the church and we do it outside of the church. And in the church, we break the status quo. I dream of Perimeter being a place that breaks the status quo. Here's the status quo. Study after study after study has shown that in virtually every church in the United States, that if you go in and you begin to survey who serves in this church, it's 15 to 20% of the people. And 80 to 85% of the people come as consumers. And we love you. If you consume, it's okay. I'm just saying that's, what's, that's what the reality is. And the mentality of most churchgoers is I'm going to come and I'm going to take for me what's in it for me. But of those 10 to 15 to 20%, they, they begin to understand that yes, I want to be fed the Word of God, but this is a place where I go to serve. And so that perimeter church would be a place where people come through these doors and they go, virtually everyone here is serving. This is crazy. Who are these people and what is this about? And you get to say, it's, it's Jesus. Astoundingly and uncomfortably displacing me counterculturally. That the world looks at and goes, wow. We do it inside the church. We do it outside the church. That we live in such a way outside of these walls. We are so uniquely hospitable and loving and excellent in the way that we're using our gifts. That we're serving people to the point that they say, what is up with you? And you get to tell them, Jesus, that's what's up with me. Because remember, why do we do this? Look at verse 11. We do this in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. It's not what's in it for me. It's he's transformed me and I wanna live for him. Primitive Church, I I wanna celebrate how well we serve. But I want to challenge and dream about how even more we could serve, what could be true of us as we live to the glory of God, to serve and to sacrifice as his people. Let's do that well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the incredible and unthinkable way in which you have served us, Christ how you gave your life for us when we were yet enemies of God. You have served and sacrificed for us, and we pray, God, that because of your spirit within those of us who follow you, that you would compel us and lead us to to serve and to sacrifice in the same way. May we be a people who don't ask what's in it for me, but a people who are so in love with Jesus, we see what's in it for them. How can I serve others and how can I ultimately glorify my God? And in so doing, may we find the life that we so crave. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast.